Lord, we just ask you to guide, lead us as we look at the, your word. Show us what you would want us to see from this time and guide and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Kings chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 28, but let's catch up where we, where we started at. Elisha has had a room put in uh, in Shulam by, the, by what they call a great lady. She gives them a room and, and food and gives them a place to stay whenever they come through that town. Uh, he decides that he wants to give her some kind of blessing, asks, you know, do you want me to talk to the king? Do you want me to talk to the, to the, to the general? And she said no, and then he goes, okay, we'll do this. You, need, you, haven't, you don't have any children. We'll pray that God will give you a son. And he says, you'll get a son. And then we left off with her son dying. And that she had ridden off to find him and so that she would be able to uh, ask for her request. And we left off with her bowing down at, at his feet, grabbing hold of his feet and saying, you know, um, and he's saying, I didn't even, I, God is, you know, telling Gehazi as he's trying to get her off of him, uh, I don't know what's going on, leave her alone because God hasn't even told me what's going on at this at this point. So at verse 28, then she said, did I, not desi- did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute you, answer him not again and lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as my soul lives, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore, he went again to meet him and said, The child is not awake. All right, so we're going to stop there because there's a little bit going on at that point that we want to kind of understand and see. Uh, once she starts talking to him, she goes, you know, did I even ask for this child? And remember, that's what she said in the first place. When he says, this time, at the time of life, this time next year, you will have a child, a, a son. And she goes, don't deceive me. I didn't ask for a son you know, there's, all, there's this whole ad, ad, attitude that she was so committed to, I'm never going to have a child, that it, I think it was, we talked about this, was probably a real secret desire of hers. But she also didn't want the child because she didn't think that it was going to happen. Now she's had a child. It doesn't say how old he is when it says he's a lad, so he's probably pushing teen years at least. And all of a sudden he dies. Now she's heartbroken all over. She's been getting used to having this child, and now the child's taken away. And again, she goes to him and says, did I even ask for a child? And did I, you know, I told you not to deceive me. You know, why did you make things? Why did you get my hopes up only for them to be dashed? Uh, so she's heartbroken at this point, as any mother would be at this point. You know, even if it's not a miracle child like hers was, you don't expect your child to die before you do. All right, so this is, you know, I didn't even ask for this child. You, you, you prayed for this. You, you brought this child on, and now he's dead. Kind of it's all your fault. I'm going through this pain, and it's all your fault. And he then turns to Gehazi, and Gehazi, his servant, he says, gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go and go. Now, this is not something that was unusual. The prophets and would do this frequently where they would send something that belonged to them 
And it was the idea that because it belonged to them that their, their power would be ex, ex, uh, carried by that item. Remember when Elisha sees Elijah taken away on the chariot, he grabs hold of the cloak and his first question at the, at the River Jordan as he smacks it with the cloak is, where is the God of Elijah? Uh, so he was you know, saying this cloak represents the power of Elijah to him and stroke, since this time, he is the one that's gotten that power. He's now understanding that God is dealing with him, but he's sending the staff. Here's my staff. Take my staff, and, and the, my power you know, will go with you, or technically, he's thinking God's power will go in my staff. And this is something that we see all through history and through time. Uh, people tend to think that things get power. All right, we have them in our stories, King Arthur and the sword Excalibur. All right, and it's not the only place where something <laughs> gains power for being possessed or, or owned, and it's not far off on this. Um, we see later on in Kings where, they where the king is going to destroy the bronze serpent that was raised up in, in uh, the wilderness when people were bit by the snake and healed people. And why did he get rid of it? Because people had started to worship that. And all through the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, um, the Catholic Church kept gathering religious relics and making them something that people would worship. Uh, it's said that if all the pieces of the cross that the Catholic Church found were all gathered together, the cross would be a super cross. All right. Uh, the bones of different, different uh, apostles are scattered all over Europe, supposedly. And again, it's one of those things, if all the bones actually belonged to them, boy, they, they had a lot of bones involved in them. Right? Basically, they found things, said, this is Peter's bone, we're going to build a church over this bone, and this bone has power. And we laugh about it, and it does seem silly, because the Bible says to not raise up any gods before you, not to have any idols, and yet these things became idols. And so there's not far off here on when he's saying, take my, take my staff. You know, now, he could have had a blessing on it. And we know that some of it comes out to be a valid statement. In Acts, we're going to get to a place where they said, even the claws that Paul wiped the sweat off were being taken and people were being healed by the cloth. All right. Uh, I'm not sure where I stand on all of that. It seems strange to me that these things happened. But God uses it in some way, some, some shape. But I have problems with it. You know, here, take my, take my Bible. It, it's, I use it every day. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bring God's word to you. You know, I don't see how this is, but yet it's believed. All right. Um, there was a point where they believed that just taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle was guaranteed win. And if you remember the... In Judges, they took it into battle and it ended up losing the battle and the Ark of the Covenant went to Philistine, the, the Philistia, where it caused all kinds of problems in all the cities that it was into. Uh, I love those stories because every city had, had health issues and on one of them they put it in the Temple of Dagon and Dagon bowed down in front of, the, in front of God's uh, Ark and they lifted him up and the next morning he fell down, they lifted him up and the next morning he fell down and, and all the pieces were broken up. You know, so we do understand that there is some form of power that God uses in, in these. When the tabernacle was constructed and fully built, God's glory came upon it 
and it became a special, special place. The temple, when it was built, God's glory fell upon it. Even though he didn't even ask for it, he says, okay, David, I didn't ask for a temple, but if your son's going to build it, I will honor it. And he fell upon the temple, and there was some blessing to it. And you know, we want to be careful because we can take these things way too far and worship the, the item rather than God behind it. Uh, it's fallen out of use in, today, in today's world, but churches used to call their main, san- main room a sanctuary. Uh, and that meant that it was special. God was there. And I understand, the, I understand the thought process and everything, but a lot of people are know it's just a room. Well, I understand that on one side, and yet I know that God meets us <laughs> at places. And there is some validity to this. God's presence says he has chosen Jerusalem for his presence. So there's things special about Jerusalem. And there are people who go to Jerusalem and say they feel the presence of God differently in Jerusalem. I've never been there, so I don't know. But I can also understand this is where God says, I dwell. I have chosen this place. So here we see them sending the staff. And we find that the staff doesn't do anything. <laughs> you know, surprise, surprise, it doesn't do anything. Um, and he tells him, you know, go, don't greet anybody, don't acknowledge anybody. He says, basically he's saying you're on a mission. Just go straight to the boy, put the staff on his, fa- on, on his face, and tell me what happened. And so he's on a mission, doing what it is. And it says, the mother says, I'm not leaving you. All right? The mother has an opposite problem. She thinks it's all about Elisha and not God. Right? Because you, you see that tendency. You know, why did they build this house? Because she wanted the presence of Elisha to be there because when he came there, God's presence would be there. So it wasn't that they could have God's presence without him. So she has, Elisha's got this other process. I'm so, you know, God's so good that even my staff will be it. She's looking at him saying, I'm not buying any of this. I'm not going anywhere unless you're there because you represent God. She is closer than Elisha at this point. But she's still putting her faith in the wrong thing. And we've got to be careful about that ourselves. You know, I say over and over, coming to church isn't going to save you, but coming to church will help you grow. But if we put all of our focus on the church, it's the wrong place. And we want to be careful about that. We cannot be worshiping the thing. We need to be worshiping God. As much importance as I put in the word of God and the need of the word of God, I have to understand that it's not this book that's special. It's not even the words in this book that are special. It's the fact that it's the word of God and it's God's word. And I keep focused on his word. And I know people that their Bible gets old and start falling away. They put it on a shelf because they cannot bear seeing anything happen to it. Because the book itself is so special. And I understand to a degree but when we make the book, the written book, what's important, we're making it a God. We're making it God, and we're forgetting who it is behind it. And I want to be careful when I say that, because I'm not belittling God's word. I'm not belittling the, belittling the importance of his word. But it's not the actual book that's important. And I don't know if I'm making that clear on what I'm t- trying to say on that. But we need to keep focused on God. And here we got two... Even the, even the 
even the prophet is not really focused on God at this point. He's, he's using his staff as, as God and the power of God. He hasn't even bothered to pray you know, at this point. At least it's not recorded. And everything about this whole chapter, I'm seeing Elisha's kind of an interesting character at this point. Nowhere is he prayed. He didn't seem to pray when he said, we're going to give this woman, you know, we, we, we want this woman to get a child. He just said, you're going to have a child. Nowhere does it record that he prayed. She comes out to him. It's still not recording that he's praying. All right. So there's something going on here that, that God is teaching Elisha a lesson through this chapter. He's teaching Gehazi a lesson during this chapter. He's teaching the woman a, a lesson. The beautiful thing that I see in this the most is this is a Romans 8.28 moment that all things work together for good. And every one of them is going to learn a lesson that's different out of the same, same event. And this is how God works. All things work together for good is a truth that is absolutely true. And for each situation, different people will get a different value of good out of it. For the person going through it, maybe all they're learning is to be comforted by God and to stand close to God. People outside looking at that person see somebody staying faithful with God if they're, if they're honest. You know, everybody sees a different thing and God still uses it to teach. And here we're seeing everybody, nobody seems to be looking to God at this moment. <laughs> you know, uh, somehow I got a feeling that Elisha has done what many people who are being used by God get to. They all of a sudden start thinking, look what I'm doing and forget that it's God behind what they're doing. And I can't say that definitively, but I think this is what we're seeing in this chapter. Elisha's getting a little bit cocky. It's all about me. You know, this is my ministry. This is what I have done. And God is saying, let's get you back down to ground so that you're looking to me. And the woman is looking to Elisha. You know, and in many churches that happens. People look to the leader. You know, it's all about that leader. That leader's so good, I couldn't live without that leader. Uh, I'm following that leader. And that's a dangerous place to get. Yes, the leaders are important. The teachers are important. They're, they're valuable to the church. They help people learn. But the moment somebody makes that leader God or all in all in that church, you're in trouble. This is how cults form. And people go off into the wrong direction because that leader gets slightly off and everybody just follows them. That, that leader's been good so long. I've been, I'm following the leader and forget God. And this is why I say I want everybody in our church to be good Bereans. I don't want anybody to believe something just because I say it. Go out and study the scriptures and know that you agree or disagree and know why you disagree or agree. And here I think we're seeing this whole process. Elisha's being humbled a little bit. The woman is going to be taught that, to praise God, and that's what she does at the end of, this, end of this story. She praises God, and she gets her child back. So everything works out in the long run, and everybody learns a lesson. And so we see here that the mother says, as you I will not leave you. <laughs> you know, I am not going with Gehazi to see if this uh, staff works because I'm staying with you. You are the man of God. If you're not there, nothing's happening. So her faith is not strong at this point in time. Verse 31 says, And Gehazi passed before them, laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing, so there's no reaction. And 
and he comes back and says the child is not awake. <laughs> you know, nothing, you know, okay, so somewhere between the two places they meet, Gehazi's probably moving faster than, than Elisha and the, and the mother because he's by himself. He's obviously younger as well. Uh, so he's going to meet them somewhere more than halfway back to them. And he says, uh, Elisha, didn't, nothing happened. It, did, it didn't work. The, the child is still dead. <laughs> and so we see here that verse 32. And when Elisha was coming to the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. And he went in thereof and shut the door upon the, upon the two of them and, and prayed unto the Lord. So here's the first time he's prayed in this chapter. All right. And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands, and stretched himself upon the child. And the flesh of the child waxed warm. And when he returned and walked to the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him, the child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and, he, and said, Call the Shunammite woman. And he called her. And, and when she was come in, he said unto, him, unto her, to him, Take up your son and when she went in she fell at his feet and bowed herself on the ground and took up her son and went out this is again kind of a bizarre <laughs> bizarre thing we're going to see three attempts at resurrecting this child the first one is send the staff it didn't work he gets to the house and I do not understand any part of this he lays himself completely on the body of that, chi that child uh, you know, matches his eyes, matches his mouth, grabs his hands, you know, this, this is one of the reasons I think this child was much older than, than we might have thought of because uh, Elisha is going to lay on him and be able to match, match up his, match up his hand, you know, positions. So this isn't a teenager, a young teenager, this is most likely a young man. So that when he lays on him, somewhat equivalent in height, either that or Elisha was a very short man. Now, and there's nothing in the Bible to tell us that. Uh, but he lays on him. And it says the body warmed. Now, just laying on somebody is not going to warm a dead body that much. Um, this child has been dead for at least a day or two, possibly three, because the mother has ridden off to go get Elisha. And she was in a hurry, so she left, but she left it around noon went off to good Elisha. The next day, they start coming back. So at, at least this child's been dead for a day and a half, at the very least, maybe longer. And we see Elisha laying on the child. Now, this is against all of the Levitical rules. You do not touch a dead body. If you touch a dead body, you are, you are declared to be unclean. But Elisha is laying on the body. Why? We don't know. I, I have checked to see if there were any customs out there, any, any reasons for him to lay on the body. The staff, I could find some customs. That was an idea that they had, that their possessions took their spirit along with them. The lying on the body, I have not found anything to say that was a custom of trying to revive somebody. Uh, but you know, it's interesting that God seems to have given him the indication lay on the body. God does miracles in different ways all the time.
And this is a beauty of it that God does not do things the same way over and over again. Jesus, every time he healed somebody, did it a different way. And that makes perfect sense to me because if, you know, I can imagine Jesus uh, healing people, you know, one of the ways he healed people is he took a bunch of mud, uh, dirt, and spit on it, made a mud pack, put it on the guy's eyes, and he received his sight. If he had done that every time that he had received, that somebody got sight, you can, I can guarantee you that Christians all over the place would be having the ministry of spit on the mud, put it on people's eyes, and get, get, people, get, get people healed because that's what Jesus did. So I think Jesus purposely did something different every single time. And even in the scriptures, we see God working differently. You know, we have a Gideon who says, okay, you're going to be victorious, but you're going to do it with 300 people. We have Hezekiah going out to battle, and God says, okay, you send the singers out first. All right? We, we have the battle that we talked about in, in, Air, uh, in Samaria where they dug ditches and, made the, made, made, and God filled them with water, and it, it dazzled the people and thought that they had won, you know, and they ended up killing each other. I mean, God did different ways of re restoring people every single time. The children of Israel battled Jer Jericho, a mighty city that was never fallen, and they, all he did was tell them to march around the city. You know, can you imagine that battle plan? You know, how are we going to take that city, Jer uh, Joshua? We're going to march around it. Okay, where, where's, the where's the battle rams? Where's the, where's the siege engine? Nope, we're just going to march around it. Oh, by the way, on this day, we're going to march around it seven times, and then we're going to yell. And God's going to bring the walls down. First off, you've got to put picture the guys up in the, in the city like, boy, those guys are awfully crazy. All they do is march around the city every day. The, 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 the seventh day, it's like they march around seven times. Uh, uh, wow, it was strange enough they marched around once. They're, now they're marching around the whole day. And then they yelled and the walls fell. God has this way of just doing things that just don't make sense, <laughs> which is something good for us. When God uses us and says, I am going to use you to do something great. You know, and sometimes it's an amazing thing when you just look and say, God, I just don't understand. How, number one, how you're using me. And number two, why would you do it this way? God is amazing on, on when he does things his way and the way he uses us. And here he tell, apparently tells Elisha to lay on the body. And it says it started warming. And the first time he laid on it, it warmed the body. And this is kind of an interesting, literally, it just means it grew warm. He's dead. But the body is starting to get warm. Now, there are people who go, well, he wasn't really dead. He was in a coma. He was, you know, whatever. You know, I'm not going to. The Bible says he was dead. I'm going to believe that he was dead. All right. He's gotten cold. Uh, a coma body does not usually grow cold either because it is still getting blood flow. This boy was dead. He started to get warm on the first time. And then I love this section where it says, and he went up off, off the, uh, and then it says in verse 35, and he returned and walked in the house to and fro and then went up and stretched on him again. I can almost picture what's going on. He's walking back and forth praying. God, what am I supposed to do? How am I? I'm seeing him humbled because this is, like I say, he prayed when he started this process, and now he's, I believe he's praying again, even though it doesn't say that. 
he's pacing back and forth, God, what's going on? What's happening? This is why I really have this picture, and I could be totally wrong, but I picture that Elisha's being humbled a little bit, saying, it's not you. Elisha, get back on the track here. It's not you. I've honored what you've done. I've been honoring what you do, but it's not you. God's grace was giving him victories, and God is saying, it's time to get back on focus. Focus on me. And it's easy to get, get off with, on your own. Things are going well. You're getting blessed. And all of a sudden, you start forgetting that it's all God. And that doesn't mean that God walks away from you immediately when you do that. But God, at some point, is going to humble you and say, I want you to get back to realizing it's me. Sometimes it may be that he takes your blessings away for a while and says, all right, let's see if you can remember that it's me. Sometimes he will do something like this where it's obvious that things just aren't going the way you think they should. And then he lays down on this body again and it says the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. I do not have any clue why seven sneezes are there. Uh, I have looked it up on every commentary and no commentary talks about it. Which... I'm bothered by it. This is the only, this place on this word where it says sneezed is the only place in the Bible where it says that somebody sneezed. Seven times. And he sneezes seven times. Usually it's two times. Well, I mean, usually when he sneezes two times. I don't know. I don't sneeze that often. I don't know. I, I never paid attention to it. Sneezing definitely is an indication that he's alive. Okay. Uh, the dead body is not going to sneeze. All right, so this is one of the things Spurgeon, I did find a, a message on Spurgeon on this topic, and I read through it, and he did talk about the idea that this showed that he was alive, really alive. Um, he went into a lot of things about repentance, and I kind of think he went a little far, <laughs> far off. But, um, and, you know, you all know that I believe that every word in the Bible is there for a reason, but I have not been able to figure out why seven sneezes is there. Um, I will buy what Spurgeon says. It shows that he's alive because that's about as close as I can get. Yeah, um, you know, I do too. <laughs> um, seven is the number of perfection, so there is some idea that it was a perfect healing. Uh, but again, why sneezing? I don't know. I even looked to see if there was any medical idea that somebody coming out of a coma would sneeze just out of curiosity. I couldn't find anything on that. So on the top of everything, I don't know why a seven sneezes is important. But this is kind of a bizarre picture. There's no real reason for him to lay on the body and match up, his, match up the parts, you know, the body parts on it. There's no reason, you know, reason that I see sneezing to be part of this. Yes, yes. It is possible that there was some kind of custom for this. I don't know. But you're right. I remember Elijah doing the same thing. It doesn't say he matched mouth to mouth, eye to eye. He just laid on the body and, the, and, and it got healed. But maybe he squished him so hard. <laughs> he, sneezed, he, he pushed the air out of him. But, but that's not quite what it's no, describing. So. But I thought the same thing. I'm going, is, is this some form of CPR? Um, 
And it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that Elijah did lay on that person because he wanted a double portion. Maybe it took him twice, twice, two times to do the same thing Elijah did. I don't. Yeah, we're going kind of far afield on this, but we don't know what's, what exactly is going here. There is groups that talk about that, but that's a kind of a, I don't even want to go there because then we're going, then we're talking about demons of death. Yeah. And I don't even want to go there. Yeah. I'm not saying there isn't any cultural significance to either of these activities, but in the two weeks I've been studying it, I have not found any. Yeah. And none of the commentaries have, have, normally the commentaries will talk about customs and stuff. But in this case, I found no customs to, to justify what's going on. Uh, if anybody does, let me know, because I would love to know if there's a custom out there that, and I've checked lots of different uh, commentaries and stuff, and I, nobody, nobody dealt with the sneezes at all, which surprises me. It never, well, it doesn't surprise me. Anytime I think something's important, they never talk about it, so if, I, if it's some small thing like that. Uh, some of them talk about the laying down of being part of a custom, and I, but none of them really referred to it as a custom. Uh, we do have Elisha doing it, so it kind of leads me to say there's some custom to the idea that if I lay down, you know, that, that if they lay down on a body, their spirit would, you know, the, the spirit that God in them would be transferred to the body and, and rebuild them. I don't know. Uh, it's just one of those things. But the boy revives. And seven sneezes definitely proves that he's alive. Um, and I'm not going to go much beyond that because I have no idea what the sneezes mean other than that. And like I said, I was looking for some medical journal even that said when somebody comes out of a coma, they tend to sneeze or something. And I couldn't find anything of that nature either. Uh, this is just one of those things where we look at God put something in there and he says, okay, I'm just putting this in there for you to try to figure out why it's there. I actually considered that as a possibility. That's one of the reasons I looked in the medical journals to see if did the sneeze maybe jolt things. So I don't know. But you guys are all picking things that I have given <laughs> contemplation to, but I can't go in and say those because I don't find any medical proofs or any custom proofs for this. Do you have a comment, Gary? I was going to say, I suppose if you go to Strong's Concordance, sneeze means... Means sneeze. Yeah, I even thought that maybe maybe this had some special meaning, and no, it meant sneeze. And seven had no special meaning either. It was seven, so he sneezed seven times. <laughs> there's there's no hidden meaning in the Hebrew of that word. There's nothing. Um, just put it there so we can laugh at it. I I think there's some other reason for it. I I really believe there's some reason for it, but none that I have been able to find so far. Which means I'm not going to debate that there's no reason. I'm just going to say there was none that I could find. And there's many times where that is true. And I don't think I'm going to care when I get to heaven. God, why did you put seven sneezes in that, in that story about the boy being healed? Um, at that time, if it's important, he'll have told us what it means. So. But, you know, this is something that is very important. Just because we don't know why something's there does not mean that it's not important. In the 1800s, when evolution was starting to be pushed as a scientific thing, 
they struggled to try to match science with the creation story and came up with some really dumb ideas on, on how, how to match the two, the, the scientific proofs with, with the Bible. Now we know that if they just stuck with the Bible, the scientific proofs are falling apart and they needed to stay with the Bible. So this is very important for us. Even if we don't understand what we're reading, it is true. And God has a reason for it to be there. And I understand. Believe me, I teach that every word is important. So it's in there for a reason. I just have no clue why at this point. I will probably study it off and on now for a while until I find somebody who actually says something that makes sense. I've found a couple people that tried to make sense of it. And one guy said it's all about repentance, that he had to sneeze out the sins. And I'm going, what the heck are you, what the heck are you talking about? Okay, but this is the stuff that you find. You find some really bizarre things out there when people are trying to spin things in some way. They're looking for some reason to, and some people have talked about the idea of sneezing devils out, and I'm going, that doesn't make any sense either because it gets dead. You know, he's not possessed by a devil. He's dead. <laughs> uh, so. If anything sneezes, it's getting him up. Yeah. So we don't know exactly what's there, but he is healed. Well, healed, raised from the dead. I guess you're not healed if you're dead. You're you're resurrected. (laughs) He's alive. Um, And so he comes up and he says to Gehaza, Gehaza, go call the Shunammite. And he says, here's your son. Take your son. And it says that she fell to the, she bowed to the ground and took her son and went out. I think at this point she's actually realizing it's not Elijah, Elisha that's the power, it's God. And this is very important for us always to remember, it's God. And some of the times we see people doing healing ministries. They're anointed by the Holy Spirit and they get healing and they, they start getting off track and start saying, come to my healing ministry and they forget to, to glorify God for the healing. And it's real easy for us to drift off into that, look what I'm doing, look what I've accomplished. And we have to be very cautious of that because God will cut us down to size if we try to do that. And it might be, especially if we get really deep into it, we may be very embarrassing when he cuts us down to size in this process. So we always have to remember it's God. When God uses you to make a ministry and to, to establish something, it's God that is always the center of it. And no matter how good you think you get at it and how much you think it might be you in the process, God will prove that it's, that it's him. If you're a teacher thinking you're the one doing the teaching, he might just let you teach a day without his help. And stumble and, st- and stagger and not be eloquent and then say, okay, now are you, are you ready to re- recognize that it's me? You're doing a healing ministry and you're forgetting it's all about God, you might have nobody get healed one day. So it's very important that we always keep focused on Him. And believe me, I've watched it happen. I've had it stumbled into it myself a couple of times where I start thinking it's about me. And God says, no, it's all about me. And I've read the stories, I've heard the stories of people who think it's about them, and God reveals it's Him. And it's very important for us to keep that in mind. All right, next story. This, this chapter has, has four stories in it. Verse 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, 
and there was dearth in the land or famine in the land. And the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said unto his servant, Set up a great pot and boil porridge in the, for the sons of the prophets. And one of them went out to the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered thereof of the wild gourds his lap full and came and shred them into the pot of porridge and for they knew them not. And so they poured out for the men to eat and it came to pass that as they were eating the porridge that they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot and they could not eat thereof. But he said to them, bring me meal, and he cast it into the pot, and he said, pour out for them that they may eat, and there was no harm in the pot. Now this is kind of an interesting little miracle. Uh, a famine hits the land. They're having trouble finding food, and, and so we're back to the sons of the prophets. He's back at the school of the prophets, and he says, all right, set up a pot and start boiling some por uh, porridge. Uh, in this case, the porridge basically is the idea of uh, some kind of grain that he's, that he's born in. Probably is not oats, but they're boiling some kind of soup, some kind of, some kind of lentils or soup or something. And one guy gets the bright idea that he wants to add some herbs and some other stuff that he finds out in the wilderness. And he goes out and he grabs herbs and it says he, and he found a wild vine. Most people believe that what he found was something called colosynth, which is a cucumber-like um, gourd. And it says he shredded it and put it in the pot. If it was this particular item, it causes upset colic in the person. And if you get enough of it, it will kill you. So these guys start eating, and they start getting an upset stomach, basically, and realize this guy, you know, somebody has put something in here that is not healthy. And this is something that we do, if you know anything about survival, you just don't go out and pick anything out in the wild and eat it if you don't know what you're, what you're doing. Now, some things are very edible that we would never think about. Some things look edible that aren't edible. And so he goes out, and it says he grabbed a lap full. He filled his entire cloak full of these gourds, uh, or this, this wild vine that he finds. And he doesn't just slice it, he shreds it. <laughs> so it isn't something that you can even pull out of the pot. All right, he has shredded it and filled it in the pot. And they cook this up, and it gets all through their soup, or whatever it is that they're making. And they taste it, and they're going, there's death, there's sickness in this in this, uh, in this pot. Elisha comes in and he says, give me some meal, some flour. And he puts a little bit of flour in the pot. Now one thing we know is that flour might get rid of a small amount of poison, but it's not going to get rid of a lot of poison. So this is a miracle. You know, so we look at this, okay, what are we looking at? We look at a wild gourd, something that is infectious, and I believe that he's talking about sin. This is a spiritual point of view. There's sin that, that's going to infect them and cause death. He brings in flour, and flour oftentimes represents God's presence in, a, in, in, the, in the place. So he brings God's presence and puts it into the, into the, into the porridge, of, which is full of sin, and God's grace makes it 
makes something good out of it. Just as he does in our life. If we're not careful and we're hanging out with the wrong people, sin infects our life and brings death into our life, especially for even for us as Christians. We can hang out with the wrong people and not experience our life that we have and experience death. Not that we're going to go to hell, we're not losing our salvation, but we can get so wrapped up in the world that we end up living a really dead life again. We're trying to get back into the world. And there's nothing but death in that. And as we're told in in Ecclesiastes, that's worse than not having it. To have known life, to slip back into death, we are in a more miserable state than when we were there before we were saved. Before we were saved, it was just miserable. But we didn't know any better. We knew we were missing something, but we didn't know what we were missing. Once you get saved and fall back into sin, now you know what you're missing is God. You're trying to find it in the sin and it doesn't fulfill you because it didn't in the past. And what's worse is your your worldly friends don't trust you because you abandoned them in the first place and they're wondering what's wrong with you. And this is something that's very interesting. We go back to our worldly friends sometimes thinking that we're going to be accepted by them And they look at us as a traitor to them and a traitor to God. You didn't didn't follow us. You you didn't think we were good enough. And now this God that you said was so good, you've abandoned him. And now you're in between worlds and have nothing. And this is the, the bad thing about falling back into sin. We are doubly miserable because we know what we're missing. Our friends in the world don't trust us. And they don't think that we know what we're, you know, they think we're schizophrenic because we didn't, like, we didn't like the sin and we didn't like God and now they don't know what to believe about us. And we shake up their confidence in God because they were looking at us and saying, you've changed, you're not the same person and then all of a sudden you're back with them and you've destroyed the witness of God in your life and in their life. It's a very serious thing to backslide that severely. And here, I think we're seeing, he says he threw in basically God into the situation and death was taken out. And the good news for us, repentance and turning back to God will always bring us back to God. God is not going to throw us away just because we backslide. And it doesn't matter how far we backslide. He's not going to say, well, that's it. You can't, you know, you've gone so far back. I'm just not going to accept you anymore. I love that God's mercy and grace says, I'm going to bring you back. The prodigal son falls deep into the mire and so hungry, so desperate that he wants to eat the pig's food. And pig's food is not appetizing. If you've ever seen, even in today's world, pig food is not appetizing looking. And it really wasn't appetizing looking back then. It was all the waste, all the garbage that you could, could, could have that nobody else ate, you fed it to the pigs. And which is why pigs had even worse problems with trigonosis and everything than they do today. Today they get pretty clean food. They're they're fairly healthy. They're not as deadly as they used to be back then because the pigs would eat anything. They got anything. Anything that nobody else in the family would eat, it's totally rotted and ruined, you gave to the pigs. The prodigal son was wanting to eat that stuff. But you know, that is us when we turn away from God. 
We're eating the filthiest things that we can eat, and what's bad is that we know they're bad. It was bad enough before we were saved and we didn't have good food, we didn't know any better. Here, we see in these guys, they're falling, they're, they're falling away. And there's this revelation of God. God in your position will draw you back. David stands before Nathan, or Nathan stands before David, gives him his story about this man who stole a, stole a sheep and killed it because he didn't want to use his own. And Nathan says, you're the man, because David got angry at the story. And David finally repented of his sin. How miserable was David during that period of time? doesn't record, but he had to have been miserable. For at least nine months during the pregnancy, he's guilty. Then it says the child was a young child, around one or two years old when he dies. So we're looking at several, almost two to three years that David is out of fellowship with God before Nathan comes before him. And this is the sad thing. When we fall from God, oftentimes it will be for long periods of time when we truly fall from him. It's one thing to fall into sin and repent and everything, but when we totally turn from God, it might be months, years before we finally turn around and say, you know what, God? Things were a lot better when I was with you. I, I, I repent. I turn back to you. And this is very important for us to bring back. God is always waiting for us. He's always waiting for us to repent and turn back to him. And he's always there to accept us. This is the beauty. God is not there and saying, okay, when you prove yourself, I'm going to accept you. The prodigal son comes back to him and the father hugs him while he's in a filthy garment that he has been feeding the pigs with. He's been tending pigs with the, in, in the clothes that he comes back in. And pigs love to wallow in mud. There's muddy conditions all around pigs. They're dirty, smelly animals. He stunk. Stunk worse than the, than the, than the shepherds would have stunk. And people didn't like shepherds. And the father didn't run up into him and say, okay, now as soon as you've had a bath and we put a new, new, new robe on you, I'll give you a hug. He immediately just hugged his stinky, smelly child and says, let's get you cleaned up and get a new robe on you. Put a ring on your feet and shoes on your feet. Uh, ring on your finger and shoes on your feet. Uh, and just acknowledged him for where he was at. God does this for us. Why? Because Jesus paid our debt. It is finished. All of sin is paid for. And there are a lot of people that go, well, my sins were paid for before I got saved, and since then I don't know if I get saved, I've got to keep my own salvation and do good. Well, you know what? According to my Bible, Jesus died for all the sins of the world, past, present, and future. When I get saved, he didn't just start to forgive my sins at the moment I got saved. He also forgave all the sins that I ever would do. And I'm happy because I get to sin every day, and I need that forgiveness because I'm going to sin every day. If I could make it through a day without sinning, I would probably die of a heart attack <laughs> because it would be that amazing. You know, now, are my sins the big, horrendous sins of everybody? No, I've got lots of other problems. My problems are mostly in my brain. Most people are not going to know my problems. You know, the lustful thought, the, the idea of should I lie, the, the anger that you get. 
you know, the longer you walk, walk with God, the more your sins are internal sins that most people aren't even going to be aware that you have because you're dealing with all those other ones. And we see this, their acceptance. And it says there's no death in the pot now that God has been put into the, into the mix. So we put God in the midst of our, of our sin. And then in Romans 8.28 happens. We get, we, get back where, we get back into relationship with him. And you know, sometimes when our lost friends see us fall and we repent and they see that God accepts us, it can mean more to them than us never falling. And I'm not going to say it's good to fall, but they look at us and say, you've got a God that forgives you even when you mess up. Yep, my God will forgive me even when I mess up. Even when I mess up really bad, I repent and God accepts me. That impresses people because they know one thing for sure, that in their, in their condition, they're not going to be able to get victory over it. Now, they don't realize that when they get saved that God will give them victory over it. But most of them have tried to give up their sin. Whatever their sin is, they've tried to give up in their own strength and fallen back into it. Whether it's alcohol, drugs, uh, fornication, all the, any, no matter what it is, they have given it up at some point in their life because it didn't fulfill what they want and fell back into it. So if they see us fall back in and then get accepted by God all over again, that's going to give them hope. Oh, there is hope because I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to give up what I, what I've, and, and be accepted by God. Now, God will give us the strength. He'll give us the victory. He'll take away the desires. He'll do all of that for us. But we don't want to get to the place where we think, if I failed, it's all over. God, I failed. I can't serve you anymore. And that is something we have to be very careful because every one of us is going to fail. Every one of us, when we start a ministry, is going to have some troubles. For one thing, Satan doesn't like us to start moving forward with God, and he's going to, he's going to intensify the attacks on us. So every time you step forward to serve God, Satan intensifies the attacks and try to stop you from serving him. And we want to be careful of that. Number one, know that he's going to attack. That's half, the, that's half the way to win is knowing that he's going to attack. But even knowing is not going to stop the attack from seeming bad. And here we have this whole process that God is still going to accept us even when we slip and fall and make a mess of the ministry that he's given us to do, he still will use us. Because it's not us, it's him. And the more that I let him do the work, the more glory will go to him. And as he's lifted up and the glory goes to him, things will be successful. And our last little story, which is something that's interesting, verse 42. And there came a man from Baal Shal-Ishah, and he brought to the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and full ears of corn in the husk thereof. And, said, and he said, Give them to unto the people that they may eat. And his, and his servant said, what should, I set, what should I set this before a hundred men? <laughs> and he said, Give to the people that they may eat. And thus saith the Lord, They shall eat and shall leave thereof. And he set before them, and they did eat and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. So we have 20 barley cakes, and these are not big loaves of bread like we're thinking of. These are rolls. So he's got like 20 rolls, 
and a few ears of corn. And he says, okay, feed, feed there's 100 people here, 100 men, so there's probably more than, more than that in the, in the group, so there's probably two or 300 people in all. He says, give to these people, and he's going, what, there's 100 people here, how can this little bit of food feed this many people? Now, does that sound just a little bit familiar to the miracle of Jesus? You know, uh, let's feed these people. Uh, Jesus, we, we don't have enough money to go buy the food. What do we have? We have five, five loaves and three, and three fish. Feed them. Feed the 5,000 with five loaves and three fish. Most people forget about this story in the Old Testament where somebody's fed, fed a lar large group of people with a small amount of, amount of food. What this one is really showing us that with just a little bit, God can do much. And this is good for us. When we don't feel like we have anything for God, if we just make our little bit of effort available to him, he will do great things. We, we provide a little, a little bit of food, and God does mighty things. Jesus did the same thing in the, in the scriptures. Here, it doesn't tell us how much was left over, but he says there's going to be leftovers. You're going to take these, you know, 20, 20 um, rolls and, the, and a couple of ears of corn. You're going to feed 100 people, and by the way, you're going to have leftovers. And it doesn't tell us how much leftovers there was. I think it was a miraculous amount of leftovers just to make a point, but it doesn't tell us. He just said there will be leftovers. And this is the beauty. When God works in our life, we present our little to God. What does he do with it? He makes ministries out of it. He makes miraculous things out of it. And he touches people's lives because of our obedience in small things. In Proverbs, it tells us, despise not the day of small beginnings. Too many times we get disappointed. We start a ministry and, only, and nobody shows up. It's like, God, did you really tell me to start this? Stay faithful. Stay faithful until God says not to. Well, God, only one person showed up. Well, on my wall in my office, there's still a sign that says, what is the value of one soul? If we can touch one person with the gospel of Christ, is it worth anything that we put into that effort to have that happen? I think so. You know, we, we are in a small town. Will we ever be able to minister to 100, 30, even 30 or 40 or hundreds? Who knows what God can do? But we start small. Ministering to one person at a time. If that's all he gives us, we minister to one person. And eventually, we might see four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Who knows? Started at this church. We had six people coming out to this church. This church was almost dead when I got called to this church. And now we have roughly 24, 25 people on a Sunday morning. Tripled the size. Yeah, we tripled the size. Yeah, you know, actually quadrupled the size. Yeah. You know, we're still not, we're not still a large church, but. But now we're having Bible studies. And, and now we have Bible studies for, you know, uh, three other times a week. And we have the women's Bible study and we have the new recovery ministry going on. We are reaching out to lots of people. What is God going to do with them all this? I don't know. But we started out with a church that was barely alive, and now we have people that are alive and doing ministries as well. The greatest thing for me is that I don't have to do anything, all, all the work anymore. When I first got here, it was me. 
I taught Sunday school, I, I ministered to the kids, I taught the, taught the service, I, it was me. The, the end of the month dinners was me taking, making sure they got taken care of. Now I've got people doing all these little things because of what God has done and how he's blessed. And I know that it's his blessing. Yes, I get the privilege of having been the leader of this church, but it could have been anybody that God put in that place. And now watching other people stand up and become leaders and take over ministries, it's the greatest thing that I can think of because it's being duplicated. Yes, I still get the privilege of leading and teaching and helping people learn, but people are now taking and advancing upon that and moving forward. And it's great. It's great to watch God take a little and start doing great things. And where, we're, where this church will end up, I have no idea. I have no idea where God's going to take us to. But I'm watching and seeing ministries develop. I'm looking forward to what the recovery ministry has a potential of doing for our church. Because there's lots of people in this town that need recovery from their sins and their effort. God may do great things and that may be the one that does it. I don't know. You know who knows how he's, going to, how he's going to manage this because it's all in his hands. And I don't need to be the one to be in the center of everything because I'm nothing. And I realize that I am nothing. Yes, I've studied for, for 50 years. I've studied and I know my Bible well and I can teach. But I am not the one making things happen in this church. It is God. And God is using people. And it's a beautiful thing to watch God do things in other people's lives. And if we get a big ministry because of the recovery and we get more people in recovery than we have in church, praise God. Those are people being reached. Hopefully they will start coming to church as well. But even if they didn't and we start seeing people saved and that recovery ministry becomes the big ministry, great. I don't mind if Gary and Sarah get, the, get all the glory for it because it's still God. Because I know you two will give God the glory knowing that it's not you. And this is the beautiful thing. We have a ladies' Bible study that is going on that, that is ministering, you know, sometimes to only one or two, sometimes to, you know, to as many as in, in this group, you know. But it is wonderful to see God being ministered in other ways and being able to say, God, we now meet not just the four times a week that I meet with everybody. We've got two other meetings going on. We might get to the point where you guys meet with people more than I meet with people. <laughs> you know, and that's not bad. That is God reaching forward and ministering through the body of Christ. I will still be the head pastor. I will still be teaching the people, teaching the word. And many of what, much of what I teach will be poured out to them. So, but I don't have to be the one. And, you know, the problem that you have is if you think you're the one that has to get something done, you limit, your, you limit the ministry. And this will be true even for the recovery ministry. If, you're the, if you feel that you're the only one that can make this thing happen, you're limited. It has to take others. Same thing with the ladies. Maybe we'll end up with two ladies Bible studies. I don't know. And I'm not saying that this is going to happen or won't happen, but if we think that we're the one that must make something happen, we're limiting God. Because God will work through many people and do many things for everything. And just stay faithful to God and stay focused on him. And he will do much with the little given to him. I've just been faithful. Give out, give out God's word. Give out God's word. Give out God's word. And now I'm watching the fruit of others to ready to give out God's word. And watch what's going to happen. And see what 
harvest God will bring out because of the multiplication of it. And I hope that God does great things. I hope he develops all kinds of leaders out here. It wouldn't hurt my feelings to have home Bible studies and every night of the week have Bible studies going on and, and day, you know, during the day and in the evenings and, and raising up people that are knocking on doors and doing ministries. You know, I've always been looking, God, how can we as a church reach out more? Beyond just this Bible studies, because we need to reach out more. You know, how do we minister to the people that are sick? You know, are we helping them out by giving them rides, delivering food, whatever it might be? How can we reach out as a ministry to reach people outside the doors of this church? You know, granted, the Bible studies are a big part of it. We need to be fed. We need to know how to minister. But it has to also go outside so that if this church was to disappear, people going, wow, we, we, miss, we miss that church. You know, they were helping to feed us. They were helping to take care of us. They were helping giving transportation, whatever it might be. And they're going, wow, the church is gone. We miss the church. You know, for a long time, nobody would have missed this church if it disappeared. I think we're starting to have some impact out there. And some people are starting to see this church is something special. Not that they're coming yet, but they're being touched. And the recovery ministry might be a big part of this church doing something for this community. Uh, you know, and so we look at this. What can we do? How can we minister? What, what, what ways can we minister? What are our skill sets to minister to people? And be able to reach out and multiply our ministry outside the walls. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for, all, for your love and your care. We ask you to guide and lead us as we go about your business. Show us the skills that you're given us so that we can serve you and always lift you up in all that we do and that you will be multiplied and grow in this community as we go forward. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.